everyone. Welcome to the Outpost Community Church Podcast. My name is Natalie, and I'm excited to introduce this week's message from our Who is Jesus series. We hope you enjoy listening and have a wonderful week of worship. All right, guys. Well, we're in a series we're calling Who is Jesus? We're doing it for all of December. Uh, and what we're doing is we're focusing... Um, on three different things, okay? Because as Christians here in Cody, we are faced with two major worldviews that challenge uh, the truth of the Bible and the gospel here in Cody, Wyoming, okay? And those are metamodernism and Mormonism, okay? And so that's why the elders and I have prayerfully decided that we're going to take five weeks, starting last week, to uh, create clarity, celebrate Jesus, and uh, hopefully leave you guys thankful for the truths of God, uh, his word and the gospel. Now, I said last week, and I'll say very briefly, uh, because a particular American Honduran woman took a lot of time. I'm just kidding. You're good. Uh, that was just a joke because everybody suddenly looked really tense, okay? Um, there, there's a, there's a, a fear that this could create an us versus them feeling, and that's not a desire that we have. We're not wanting to pick fights. We want to speak the truth, and we want to do so in love. And do it lovingly. And it's not loving to not speak the truth. And so we want to bring clarity on these subjects. And so each message that we go through, uh, I'm going to be talking about one doctrinal issue. If you don't like that word doctrinal issue, I'm going to talk about one big truth issue, okay, through the lens of these three cultural worldviews, metamodernism, Mormonism, and biblical Christianity. I say biblical because that's where we get our information from is the Bible. Amen. So last week, we looked at the Bible itself. Where do, where do these groups get their information from? Okay, how can we talk about anything else if we don't talk about where we get our information from? And hopefully last week, uh, you got to hear that the Bible is something that you guys can trust. Isn't that great? Like it's science-backed. You can trust that this is a, uh, an accurate translation, okay, of the original manuscripts. What an amazing truth to know. And today, guess what we're talking about? We're talking about God himself. Let's roll. Charles Spurgeon said this, it has been said that the proper study of mankind is man. I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which could ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. So today, if you are a a child of God, you follow Jesus, you are a Christian, today we're talking about the greatest thing you could ever talk about. We're talking about God himself. Sound good? You guys excited? You don't look it, so fix your face, all right? Here we go. Where are we going? Okay, so like I said, it's going to be a little more science than art because I want to be very careful to say this well. It took a lot of work to figure out how to say this in a way that is accurate and also at the same time is not emotionally thrown off one side or the other. So here are the four things we're going to do. We're going to look at metamodernism, okay? We're going to look look at the spiritual openness among Americans and the need for truth to create stability. Then we're going to look at Mormonism. It's got similar branding, but different interpretations on specific words. It's polytheistic. We're going to look at its polytheistic interpretations and beliefs, and then we're going to address some challenges that they face. Uh, and the way we're going to do that is we're going to look at biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity, we're going to look at biblical support for a one triune God. Today, 
I'm going to do the best I can to tell you about the Trinity. It's going to be wonderful. Uh, We're going to look at analogies that you guys often hear that fall short, and then we're going to talk about the eternality of love. Think about that. Somebody needs to write a song about that. The eternality of love, okay? Somebody with a deep voice. Okay, number four, uh, we're going to then talk about takeaways. If you're going to leave this place, I don't want you to leave as a smarter sinner. I want you to leave with some better ideas of how to live your life in a way that creates a love and a peace and a joy and a hope and a healing in your life. That when you go out and people interact with a person like you who's been changed that way, they go, tell me what you got because I want some of it. Amen? All right, metamodernism. Let's look at it. Last week I shared that metamodernism, as I define it, is a description of the current way of Western American, uh, a, a Western American person interacts with story. It's the way that you and I interact with story. Okay, in general. A metamodernist is open to new ideas, and many of you guys are, and you know that our culture is. They're open to new ideas. They're open to old ideas. They're open to all ideas. Hey, hey, truth is whatever it is for you. Let's do it. But the openness that an individual has is driven by personal benefit. You get that? It's, it's driven by personal benefit. How does it serve me? If it works for you, awesome. And if it works for you, great. But that didn't work for me. So you do it. I'll do mine. Okay? And if it doesn't, I'm going to move on. It's a fluid reality with self as the conductor of the music. So in other words, hey, I'm open to kind of anything. But I'm really looking to accomplish one thing. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the spiritual openness among Americans. Okay? Ecclesiastes 3.11, Solomon, who's the wisest man of the Old Testament, Okay, says this, he, he, being God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the hearts of man. What does that mean? It basically means that God has put a, a stamp of made in on us or made by on us. And who's, who are we made by? God, you ever, you know, when you were a kid, you get, the, you get the, the quarter machine toy or whatever you flipped over and said made in China. There is a brand on you that, that is eternity, and that brand reminds you that there's something beyond this world. And every one of us in our hearts senses the eternity, which means we sense the God that we're made from. And so the question is, uh, how do people feel about spirituality? Well, in a recent study done by Barna, 74%, listen to these stats, this is nuts, of U.S. adults say they want to grow spiritually. That is a massive rise. And 77% say they believe in a higher power. Holy moly. And since the dark days of COVID-19, we're not going to talk about it too much, 44% say they are more open to spiritual things today than they were before the pandemic, meaning the intensity of their openness has only increased. Psalm 53, one says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God, and our nation's going, I think there is one, and they're open. But the question is really, right, like what God? Of course, what God? Which, which God should I worship? Now, we're gonna cut to the chase a little bit because we're in a Christian, we're not in a Christian church. We are a Christian church inside of a, this building that's shaped for us. Um, let's ask the question, what is the interest 
in these same stats, what's the interest in Jesus and the Bible? Well, according to Barna, 71% of people polled are open to Jesus. This is like non-Christians, open to Jesus, and 63% are open to the Bible. Now, Christianity as a whole comes in at 57%. So the fact is this, guys. And uh, this may throw you off, but the world's going to say, hey, I'm not religious, I'm, you may know, spiritual. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. The fact is spiritual openness is on the rise. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Now, maybe some of you in the room, you consider yourself spiritual. And you came into this room because you're interested in learning more about Jesus and his way. And I want to tell you, man, we are so glad that you are here. Feel comfortable being here. Maybe you sense the eternity in your heart that Solomon was talking about. Maybe you realize there's something more than just the cells and the DNA and the neural pathways that are inside of you, that there's something beyond it. You are made for eternity. And listen, if you did, that's amazing. You're kind of like Caleb. Spirituality means different things to different people. And Caleb, a 25-year-old financial analyst who was in this poll, said this. He said, the point of spiritual life is to figure out who or what that is, who God is. He says, I don't think everyone has that same drive to do that, but I think it's very important. If there is a personal God, which I think and believe there is, then why not get to know them? They're the most powerful thing in the universe. You might as well chase after that. That's a non-Christian. Sensing that, hey, there's got to be more, and it's worth figuring out. Caleb's openness into pursuing God is emblematic of how Americans describe what spirituality means to them today. And if you resonate with Caleb, you're in a great place this morning. And we're so glad you're here. Now, what are these people looking for in their spirituality? What do they desire? Well, they were asked, okay? Uh, And in the New Testament, in the first century, when people came to Jesus, they were coming for something, weren't they? They were coming for some reason. Some of them were coming to Jesus because they needed some healing, Some were coming to Jesus because they wanted to hear his teaching. Some were coming to Jesus because he suddenly was having a lot of power and influence, and they needed to shut that down. So some came interested, and some came as adversaries. But regardless, why did you come to Jesus? When's the last time you thought about that? Why are you here? Tradition? Your mom made you? Right? Your grandmother mother made you. Got some hurt going on. Why are you coming to Jesus? Hey, Christian, some of you have forgotten to ask that question because you forgot why you came. I want to invite you to do that. When, we, when the poll happened, uh, the top four desires that U.S. students all the way through adults said were the reason that they are interested in spirituality. What they're looking for from spirituality are four things. Number one, inner peace, hope, healing, and forgiveness. Now, when I say spirituality, I don't mean that they say uh, Christianity. I mean just general spirituality. What are they looking for? Inner peace, hope, healing, and forgiveness. Now, how these are defined are not actually in the research, but I think we all get it, right? Anybody in here want inner peace? Anybody come to Christianity because you needed some hope? Anybody want some healing? Anybody come to Jesus because you knew you needed forgiveness? Yeah, we get it, right? I understand that. These are great desires, and I believe with all my heart that if you're, the only place you're going to find these met is in the broadband of spirituality. 
There are a lot of things in this world that are going to sell you something that's not going to bring you those, right? And there's a lot, not all spirituality is created equally. Can we agree? Not all spirituality is created equally. There are a lot of things that we've gone after and we tried to pursue to give us peace that ended up robbing us peace. Anybody in the room? There are a lot of things that we put our hope in, our career, our spouse, our children, a church, a person, and ended up letting us down. And this is the greatest pitfall. The great, the great advantage with the metamodernists is that they're open and they're interested and they sincerely want to engage with these things. But the great pitfall is this. Truth is still very relative to them. And so they keep trying all these things that don't have any truth in them. And when it falls short, it creates heartache for them. Anybody ever experienced that? I've experienced it. You were hoping in something and it lets you down. This is the major pitfall of a metamodernist, the major pitfall for you and all of your friends. You keep, put, keep putting your hope in the wrong things. And this is why truth is so incredibly important. That's why Jesus says when he's talking to the people who follow him, Jesus says in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is freeing, isn't it? All right? Your feelings, right, have nothing to do with facts, as they say on YouTube. But facts and truths are really good. Truth is vital. Truth sets us free from insecurity. Do I have to worry whether or not this is true? No. It sets us free from the anxiety of disapproval. If it's true, then who cares what you think? I don't have to worry what you think. It's true. Right? It sets us free from hopelessness. This feeling of like, I'm hoping it works out, but I'm not quite sure. Truth is not circumstantial. Truth is stabilizing. And so the great, great hindrance we have as a metamodernist, as a millennial uh, person who can tend to walk in this framework is, uh, and this is what's really interesting, in the study, truth didn't make top four. When they were saying what they were looking for, truth was not one of them, which is so silly. And so it is extremely, extremely important. So now here's the thing. There's several things keeping, that are hindering metamodernists. Number one is the lack of seeking for actual truth and standing on it. The other problem is they keep running into Christians themselves. And so we're going to get back to that here at the end. But what I want to do now is I want to transition to talking about Mormonism and Christianity. Because the question that a, a person who doesn't know Jesus in this community, who's spiritual and is looking for something, the question they're going to have is, which brand of Christianity should I trust and which one should I look at? Right? Hey, one of the uh, mics is feeding back. It might be the one on the floor behind me. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Uh, which brand of Christianity should I trust? Which one should I look for? So I want to tell you an analogy. Many of you guys know that Bonnie and I were foster parents for several years, and we had a son who was a teenage boy who was awesome, loved him. Uh, but one of the things that he loved, and this was a few years ago, this was really popular, was the brand Supreme. Anybody remember this? Is this still popular? I don't know. And so Supreme is a, very, a high luxury brand, and all these high school kids were like into luxury brands. It's really weird watching a 14-year-old walk around with a Louis Vuitton belt like a real one. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, buddy. But so anyways, uh, our, our son um, really liked Supreme, loved the brand, looked good, looked good on him. And so, but the thing is, he couldn't afford a real one. So he got on Amazon and he bought a $20 uh, Supreme fanny pack. And he would wear that thing around. And to a passerby, it looked real. 
But if you went and inspected it a little more closely, you would realize it was the $20 version, not the $200 version of the Supreme bag. It was actually a, a copy, a fake. And there's something, this phenomenon is going on between the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints and biblical Christianity. And so today we're going to look at God. So Mormonism, Mormonism has similar branding with diff, different interpretations. And I think many of you guys, I've heard a lot of people, maybe you've heard this, say, heard this as well, what's the difference between Christianity and Mormonism? They're really good people. They're nice people. They believe that Jesus, if you go talk to them, they're going to say some things that I'm going to read to you here in a second. And um, this became very apparent to me because, listen, I didn't grow up around Mormons, okay? I grew up around Southern Baptists, and that's a whole other discussion, okay? I love them with all my heart, and I love Mormons with all my heart. But this uh, really came to my, to, to my face when I was standing at the, um, the temple hearing a few months ago. And it was kind of the big one where there's like 500 people. And there's a friend of mine who's a Mormon, and he was standing nearby. And we were talking, and eventually the conversation got to a place where it was necessary for me to lovingly tell my friend that Mormonism is not Christianity. And so I shared that with him, and his reply was, Greg, it's right there on the building, the Church of Jesus Christ. To which I replied with an analogy. Again, you can put supreme on the bag, but is that what it actually is? And so here, I didn't say that, I, I'm about to tell you what I said, um, okay? What I said was this, I said, hey, and don't throw this up on the screen if there's a picture there yet, um, just let me say this and then you can do it. But here's the thing, I, I've said this before, so some of you know where I'm going, but this is what I said to my friend, I said, hey, listen, when I was a kid, I really loved Barney. I loved the way he would jump around, make kids laugh, he's super funny, and um, did you ever watch Barney? He's like, yeah. And I said, well, which Barney are you talking about? I said, well, the purple dinosaur. And I said, well, great. I was talking about Barney Fife, not Barney the dinosaur. Now, only about six of you know who Barney Fife is. So, um, <laughs> right? Is Barney, that's Barney Fife on the left. You recognize him? And that's Barney the purple dinosaur. Okay? I was talking about Barney Fife. And I said, you see, you could say Jesus but mean this, and I could say Jesus and mean that. Which Jesus are we talking about? So I want to read to you guys really quick. This is really important. Listen, I'm not trying to be like, I, I'm not trying to play gotcha. I'm trying to show you reality. Let me read to you, according to their website, their theology. This is from their seminary class that they teach to their children. You guys know where the seminary is? Down the street from the high school, right next to Carson Rally's house. Sorry to call you out, Carson, on that one. All right, I just put you on the map, bro. Now they know. All right, this is from their, uh, how do Mormons view God? I'm going to read this to you because I want to just read what they say. There are three separate personages. I think it's going to be on the screen. Okay, good. So you can follow along with me. That's going to help you. There are three separate personages in the Godhead. God, the, fa uh, the eternal father. So God, the eternal father, hard stop, his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. The father and the son have tangible bodies of flesh and bone. And the Holy Ghost is a personage, personage of spirit. They are one in purpose and doctrine. They are perfectly united in bringing to pass Heavenly Father's divine plan of salvation. Now, God the Father. God the Father is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the father of our spirits. He is perfect, has all power, and knows all things. He is also a God of perfect mercy, kindness, and charity. Now, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the Father in the Spirit and is the only begotten of the Father in the flesh. He is Jehovah of the Old Testament 
and Messiah of the New Testament. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and made a perfect atonement for the sins of all mankind. His life is the perfect example of how all mankind should live. He was the first person on this earth to be resurrected. He, He will come again in power and glory and will reign on the earth during the millennium. Does this sound familiar? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the third member of the Godhead. He is a personage, pers- God, that's hard. He is a personage of spirit without a body of flesh and bones. The Holy Ghost bears witness of the Father and the Son, reveals the truth of all things, and sanctifies those who repent and are baptized. At first glance, there are some similarities between that and what many of you know Christianity represents. Would you agree? Or a lot of that sound very familiar to you? Well, then you're right. And so what we need to do now is we have to go, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, so there's, anybody ever seen the show Columbo? Right? You know who Columbo is? Okay, if you don't, there's something that we talk about. It's called the Columbo tactic. Columbo was famous for asking a lot of questions. He would let you talk, and you would lead him to the conclusion. And so the first question we ask in the Columbo tactic is, what do you mean by that? And so let's do this. What do, we, what do they mean by Godhead, personage, eternity, father of spirits, and firstborn? I'm going to answer those for you. It's going to bring some clarity to some of our differences. The Godhead is, to a Mormon, a God council. Okay? It's made up of three gods, like a tritheism. Tritheism, tri, three, theism, God, three gods. Okay, father is a God, Son is a God, the Holy Ghost is a God. They are three different gods. They have the same goal or plan, which is a pre-mortal plan, which means prior to our existence, a pre-mortal plan of the Heavenly Father, and they're united in that plan to work together towards it, but they are three different personages and therefore three different gods. There's a lot of question in my heart as I read and researched all their stuff about whether they view the Holy Spirit as God or not. There's not a lot of information of how they really view the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about personage. What is a personage? A personage is more applied to the glorified men that are the Heavenly Father and Jesus. Though the Spirit is seen as a personage of spirit, the other two, Father and Jesus, uh, both have bones and flesh. They are a person. Okay? Earlier teachings in Mormonism viewed the Holy Spirit as the mind between the Father and the Son, but over time they changed that as they came into the 20th century. Now, as to what Mormons mean by eternal Father, what do they mean by eternal? Well, here's the thing about the word eternal in Mormon theology. Eternal has limits in Mormon theology. Eternity has limits. Let me give you a point. God the Father had a spiritual beginning. They will say that he's eternal, but not eternal going backwards, eternal going forwards. He had a beginning. He became a mortal man who continually progressed to become a God, which they call an exalted being. And God the Father has a tangible body of flesh and bones right now. Now, you're looking at me going, are you making this up? Mormon general authority Milton R. Hunter said that. God the Eternal Father was once a mortal man who passed through a school of earth life similar to that through which we are now passing. He became God, an exalted being, through obedience to the same eternal gospel truth 
that we are given opportunity today to obey. That's from Gospel Through the Ages, page 104. Joseph Smith said that if you were to see the Father today, you would see him like a man in form. He was once a man like us, yea, God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on earth, on an earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did. That's Joseph Smith in their book, History of the Church. Okay? And then in Doctrine of Covenants, which many of you guys know is one of their, uh, one of their um, theological books, it says in chapter 130, verse 22. Can you imagine a book with 130 chapters? It's a lot. I, just, I, don't, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry. Um, it has nothing to do with anything. It's just I realized that there's no book in the Bible. Well, no, there is. Psalms has 150. I'm sorry. Listen, you don't have to trust me from here on out. I get it. So, uh, what are we even talking about? Doctrine and the Covenant says, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as a man's. So for biblical support, how do they support this biblically? Biblical support um, for that particular verse um, to support the physicality or the physical nature of God, they'll go to Genesis 126 and say that because Adam was created in the image of God, therefore God must be a man if we're going to be created in his image. They're also going to take you to Exodus 33, 11, where Moses talked to God face to face and say, see, this is an example. And if you read throughout your Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of these examples where it talks about God's hands. It's going to talk about his mouth. It's going to talk about his face. Okay? Now, these quotes imply that the Heavenly Father had a beginning like us. I think you would agree. That he changed over time, which means he progressed, and that we can progress to be exactly like him in in fact, many already have, meaning they believe that there are many other gods in existence. Is this true? Brigham Young said, the Lord created you and me for the purpose of becoming gods like himself. We are created, quote, to become gods like unto our Father in heaven. Lorenzo Snow, this is the most famous quote, the fifth president of the LDS Church summarized Mormonism doc- Mormon doctrines of God and deification with one of the most recognizable quotes from a Mormon leader. As man is now, God once was. As God is now, man may be. Do you understand? Does that sound familiar to what, to biblical Christianity that you understand? Okay, I just want to make sure that you guys are just hearing me correctly. The Heavenly Father is also called, let me get to the last thing that we want to define as we move forward, Okay. Um, and listen, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to create clarity. I'm not trying to create a, a gotcha. If you leave here and you get in a coffee shop and you start playing gotcha, you didn't do what I, uh, what I said. You didn't, you're not listening. The Heavenly Father is also called the Father of Spirits. I think as a Christian you go, well, maybe, but what do they mean by that? What do you mean by Father of Spirits? Let me read to you, this is from their theology on their website, uh, about this uh, concept that they call the pre-mortal existence, pre-mortality. Let me read it to you. Premortality refers to our life before we were born on this earth. In our pre-earth life, we lived in the presence of our Heavenly Father as His spirit children. We did not have a physical body. In other words, let me just say this real quickly as I move on. Okay, no, let me just keep going. In this premortal existence, we attended a council with, the heavenly, with Heavenly Father's other spirit children. At that council... Heavenly Father presented his great plan of happiness. Abraham 3, 22 through 26. Okay, so let me just paint a real quick picture, and then I'm going to show you a picture. Um, 
it, it, here's a real quick picture. It's basically this idea that there, prior to all this existing, there is a heavenly mother and a heavenly father who had spiritual children who existed in spirit, and that's all of us. Everyone who's ever existed on the earth, that's what it is. So a really great image of this, and listen, this is not me trying to make a joke. I cannot, like the Mormon church, if they have not used this movie to help them show their children this is what we mean, uh, they're missing it because this is exactly what they're saying. So show this. Anybody ever seen the movie Soul? Okay, show the picture. This, if you've never seen the movie Soul, go watch it. Okay, it's one, uh, one thing I want to tell you is it's actually a really great movie. Like, Bonnie cried a lot, okay? Um, it's a really great movie, but I want to show you this, okay? This right here in Soul is the pre-mortal existence. And all these little dots, I know you're way back, you can't see, but there's all these little, like, white Things. Those are little spirits, and they're pre-mortal spirits, and they do a lot of time getting ready and preparing and learning and figuring out what their thing is. And when they're ready, you can't see this, but there's a black hole right there, and they jump through the hole, they come down, and they become a human being. That, minus the fact that there's no Heavenly Father right there, that is exactly what they're saying. And then when you die, we see in this movie, when you die, the spirit comes back up and you go back into the eternal existence and you go on. And it doesn't give us much more than that because the leaders of Pixar were like, we got to stop there. Okay. And so now listen, this is a great picture of exactly what they're trying to say. Not everything about Pixar. So don't get me wrong. And I think Mormons would be very frustrated with that. So I'm not looking to frustrate them. But this is a similar story if you want to look. So now the question is, how does Jesus fit into this picture of the premortal existence? Let me continue to read their website. In harmony with the plan of happiness, the premortal Jesus Christ, who would have been one of those guys, uh, the, the firstborn son of the Father in the Spirit. So in other words, what that means is Jesus was the first spirit child of Heavenly Father. In other words, he is our older brother. We are not species unique. We are the same. We are of the same kind. And he covenanted to be the Savior. And those who followed Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ were permitted to come to earth to experience mortality and progress towards eternal life. So when they say firstborn, what they mean is that Jesus is the first spirit child of the Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. And since Mormons believe that all humanity are spirit children of the premodal couple, we often hear them, you'll hear their spiritual leaders say at their general conference or council or whatever they call it, but in Salt Lake City, they'll call him the elder brother. And then Jesus progressed in this premodal life by obedience and devotion to the truth in the spirit world until he became a god. And then, according to the plan of happiness, he came to earth to accomplish the work of the gospel. Now, let me sum it all up for you guys, all right? If you're a note taker, if you've got a camera, you can take a picture of this. I think it's going to be on the screen. To sum it all up, Mormons believe that God the Father was a created spirit child of another heavenly mother and heavenly father. He became a man who progressed to become God, who had Jesus by another spirit, a heavenly mother, Jesus progressed to become God. They work with the Holy Ghost to lead a plan of happiness. And Mormons are currently right now working to become gods as their father and many others have done so before them in the past. Okay? That's what they believe about God. Now the last question I want to answer is this. Are Mormons polytheists? Okay? Even though Mormons believe in innumerable gods, they claim they are not polytheists because, and listen, this is what you will hear. 
they worship and pray only to one God, the Father. They do not worship and pray to Jesus. They pray to the Father in Jesus' name. They do not pray and worship other gods. And so they would say, therefore, we're not polytheists. But the definition of polytheism has nothing to do with worship, prayer, or any spiritual devotion. It's the belief that there are poly, many, theos, gods. So by definition, Mormons are polytheists. Okay, there's a lot of challenges to this in and of itself. Uh, There are many challenges that Mormons uh, face, but the only answers that matter to us today are those that the Bible brings, okay? So it's not up to John Piper, it's not up to Greg, it's not up to you. It's up to what does the Bible actually say? And so today, as we look at who God is, I'm going to be quoting some scripture and walking through some things to create clarity. The subject of God, who God is, his nature, his character, uh, his divine attributes, right, his communicable attributes and all those things, I've got, I got... I got volumes you can go read. I'm about to give you specific things that kind of show you like this versus that. Okay, not verses, but this in contrast to that. You tracking with me? You guys ready to look at God through the Bible? You ready to do this? Okay, let's do that. Let's find some clarity. In biblical Christianity, number one, God is not a man. He is not a man. Hosea 11.9 says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God. Not a man. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of or a son of man that he should change his mind. Romans 1, 21 and 23 say this: For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And listen, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. God does not resemble mortal man. Simply put, God is not a man. And that's awesome. Thank goodness. Because if you were my God, this place would stink. You know why? Because then God would be a liar. And God would probably be unmerciful, just as you and I are. God would probably change his mind like you and I do. He would have all the fallen attributes that you and I have. But he says, I am not like you. I created you. And these passages of scripture that describe his hands, his mouth, his feet are meant to be interpreted anthropomorphically. Anthropomorphically means to give human-like language to something inanimate or to give it to something else. Okay? If, If it is true... So that's how we're supposed to interpret Genesis 1, uh, 20, or how we're supposed to interpret Exodus 33, 11, where it says they talk to him face to face. You're supposed to see that as, as if face to face. And if you did it, if you wanted to take the Mormon interpretation and follow it that way, then what are you going to do when you come to passages when it says that God uh, hides us under the feathers of his wings? Are we to say that our God has feathers and wings? Proper interpretation of the Bible is going to say that He is not uh, a bird. Number two, God is invisible. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Colossians 1.15 says that he, Jesus, is the image of the what? Invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God is invisible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
Philip said to him uh, in John 14, he said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, uh, Philip, have I not, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Uh, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? As for Jesus being the firstborn, okay, if you were with us in Colossians when I taught through it, in Colossians chapter 1, you may remember that I said that being firstborn doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created of all creation, but that he holds the rank of a firstborn. To be the firstborn child means you have the rank, you are the inheritor. And give you a good example, God calls David, the seventh born of Jesse, the firstborn. You want me to give you an example? Psalm 89, 27. And I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, it's a rank. It doesn't mean he's going to go, like, somehow <clears throat> in a crazy biological way reverse the age order of he and his older brother. Number three, God is eternal, backwards and forwards. God is eternal backwards and forwards. Psalm 93, 2, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. What does that mean? Okay, it doesn't mean like there's a town 40 miles from here called everlasting. And if you get on this road and go that way, you're going to get to where it is. Everlasting means, hey, if you get on this road called time and you go that direction and keep on going, you're going to find out where God's from. And you go, well, how far do I go? He's like, you never stop. That's everlasting. It's an experience of always in that direction. And listen, Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah uh, 57, 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. He's from eternity. He is in eternity. And in 1 Chronicles 16, 36, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Your God is eternal. He's not going to die. He wasn't born. He's always existed. Number four, God does not change. Thank God. Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's clear in Hebrew and in English. And praise God, because if he did change, he could change his mind about us. He could change his mind about saving you. When you made that mistake again last week, and you were feeling depressed and anxious and going, ah, oh, God doesn't love him anymore. If he was a God who changed, maybe. But he's a God who doesn't change. So when he says he loves you, that does not change. Amen? That's God. Let's go. Now let's look at the biblical support for a one triune God. And we were joking before me and Chet, wherever Chet went, about, he's like, are you going to answer everybody's questions about the Trinity today? He's like, yes, all of the 2,000 years of trying to explain that, today I'm going to fix it. No. But let's look at this, okay? You're, gonna see, you're never going to see the word Trinity in the Bible. Never going to see it. But you're going to see the concept. And I'm going to show it to you today. So <clears throat> let's look at it. The biblical support for, there's biblical support for the belief that God is one and that there is only one God. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. This is really important in comparison, in contrast to Mormon theology. Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, 
nor be afraid. In other words, hey, don't worry, no one's coming. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? And he says, there is no rock. I know not any. What he's saying is, there is no other God. I know not any. So the all-knowing God is saying that he doesn't know of any other God. Okay. There is only one God in the cosmos, and that God is three. You go, how? Well, here are three useful terms to help us understand the biblical view of the Trinity. And those three words are, and I'm going to email this in our, our church email. If you do not get our church email, you're going to get a document that's going to share this. Uh, all you have to do is, everyone else is going to get it. You should get it too. Um, you just go to our website. It's right there. You say, hey, I like the newsletter. Put it in there. Put your email, and it'll come to you, okay? But I'm going to shoot, shoot you guys a document that shows a lot of this. So if you can't keep up with your notes, here you go. Or there you go. Unity. Unity, equality, distinction. Unity, equality, distinction. Unity. There is one God existing in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy 6.4, very important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. Okay? Equality. Each person is fully God. Okay? Where does Scripture say that the Father is God? Well, if you go to 1 Peter 1, 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Where does the Bible say that Jesus is God? Well, if you go to John 20, 28, when Jesus made a post-resurrection appearance, doubting Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Where does the Bible say the Holy Spirit is God? If you go to Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, but Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Skip to the bottom, verse 4. You have not lied to man, but to God. Okay? A verse that shows this, probably the most beautiful, you should memorize this verse for lots of reasons, is Matthew 28, 19. Matthew 28, 19 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does it say? Baptizing them in the Greek word name, the singular name, in the name of, which is one. But look at this. It doesn't say in the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It says they go to pains to clarify distinctness. Listen to this. The name, one, of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Those articles show distinction between each of the persons in the triune one God. Anybody's brain's just going like, what? Okay, you're with me. Here we go. So there's distinction. Each person is not the other person. That's distinction. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Great, great verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So let's walk through an if-then statement. This is really helpful for me sometimes. Okay, if... All right, I was turning, and I thought I was going to get it. Here we go. If Scripture says that there is only one God, and Scripture calls the Father God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God, and Scripture in Matthew 28, 19 clearly points to a three-in-oneness within the Godhead, then it is clear the Trinity involves three persons in one God, not three separate gods. How are we doing? Anybody with me? Okay, there's some analogies that you've probably heard, and I'm going to show you how they fall short, because I don't want you to go out there saying these 
and you're not meaning, you're saying something you don't mean to say. How many of you have ever heard the egg analogy? Anybody ever heard somebody explain? Just Jake and me. I see that hand. All right, here we go. Uh, maybe you've heard of this egg analogy to explain the Trinity. Okay, uh, listen. Basically, what he's saying is there's three parts that make up an egg. There's the shell, there's the yolk, and there's the white. But all three make an egg, right? Okay, the reason why this falls short is because it teaches tritheism, because God is one in nature and being, okay? And what we're seeing with that is the shell is not made up of the same thing as a white or a yolk. So that teaches tritheism on accident, but it's okay. Maybe it helps you. The other one that maybe you guys have heard of is water, uh, the different phases of water. Have you ever heard of this for the Trinity? Okay, you're going to hear it now. So for next time that you're asked, raise your hand high, okay? Okay. Water. You can find water in a liquid, in a vapor, and you can find it as a solid, right? Or as a gas, not a vapor. That's, I know somebody was going to correct me. Save it, all right? As a water, as a gas, and as a solid. Here's the thing. That teaches what's called modalism, and God is not a, mo- a modalic God. So what, it, what that means is it's water displaying itself in the same way, but it's still just water. It's still H2O. That's modalism. It's like this. Another example people use, well... The Trinity is kind of like a dad. A dad is both a dad, a son, and a father, right? And, but here's the problem with that. It's how many, like maybe you've worked for your dad, and your dad was your boss, right? And maybe he sat across from his desk and goes, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my, my boss hat off, and I'm going to put my dad hat on. Blech. It makes you sick, doesn't it, right? Sorry, Chet. Um, okay. I'm going to take those off, but really at the same time, it's the same guy, So it's this idea that God is one, but he displays himself as Jesus, displays himself as the Holy Spirit, and displays himself as the Father. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. They are three distinct persons, one God. Now, here's the thing, guys. There's another one. This one's helpful. I don't know what it teaches. I don't know what the problem is with it. But one plus one plus one equals what? And that's the, what? Did you just say four? Three. One plus one plus one equals three. Now, you go, well, you just need to change your math. What is one times one times one? It equals? Okay, if that helps you, great. But here's the thing. Every analogy falls short because there is nothing like God. So comparing him to eggs and to your dad and to water and to math problems, it's always going to fall short because he created all those things. There's nothing like God. So the reality is there is nothing like God, and comparing him is falling short. So let's wrap this up and take this to some takeaways. Hey, one of the number one takeaways I want to tell you about is the eternality of love. Listen, please, if you hear anything I say, you came here today, listen to this. The eternality of love. There's a false assumption that God was existing out there, outside of time and space and all that, and he got really lonely and bored. And so he decided... He wanted to have something to love because love only exists if there's something to love. And so he created us human beings so that he could have something to love. That's a complete misunderstanding of the God of the Bible. Our God is a divine fellowship, and he is love. So listen, this is what 1 John 3 or 1 John 4, 8 says. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God, love has existed eternally, eternally in the Trinity. It's always existed. So listen, friends, you probably need to hear this more than anything else. You were not created so God had something to love. You were created from love. In love you were created. Not so you could have something to love. 
and then you let him down. God is not a man who thinks and feels and loves and changes the way that we do. We are like him because we are created in his spiritual image. But God is species unique. There is no one like God. And he is worthy of all of our awe, all of our adoration and praise because he created us and gave us life and capacity to, capacity to know him. And he did it all because he loves us. And though we rejected him, and listen, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Though we rejected him as God, taking the bait of a man named Satan or a spirit called Satan, the invitation from an evil one to grasp at Godness. That's what happens in Genesis 1. He invites us to try to grasp at Godness and to become God ourselves. And though we sought it and we tried to pull our waves to, our way to God's level, Satan tried to do this, but God set into motion a plan to rescue us. And in Philippians chapter 2, it says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You cannot take hold of and fully understand God. That's what makes him God and worthy of our worship. But what, so what did he do? Verse seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The man on the cross was not our older brother. He was God in the flesh. No one made Jesus go to the cross. He chose to go to the cross. In Mormon theology, Jesus was going to have to come to earth no matter what because every spirit child had to come to earth. Jesus didn't have to come. He chose to come, to come for those he loves, you. And because of the great love which he loved you, he sought you to make you alive in himself. It is by grace that you can be saved. And by the grace of God, he offers it to you as a gift. It's Christmas there's gifts around this tree right now. The greatest gift you could ever receive is the gift of grace from God. The God who's loved you, who you rejected, who you tried to replace because you thought Satan was right. And listen, guys, you don't have to go to a temple to find God. You don't have to go to a temple. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You don't have to go to church. Can you, did you know that? Sorry. You're, if that's why you came, you never have to come again. You do not have to go anywhere to find God. You know what, church? You know what it says? 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says it like this. It poses it to you as a question. Did you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? Listen, I, there's some note sheets around there, and I was going to have you do this, and I forgot, and we're running out of time. Um, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to just imagine a triangle, right? And our God is... Three in one. And God has invited you to have a relationship with him. But God has not just invited you to have a relationship with him. Guys, listen to me. He's invited you into a relationship. Into the divine fellowship of God. And he says the spirit will come in you and you will be with God. You're not going to be God. But you get to be in the Lord. And so that means this, okay? All right, listen. Some of you are going to leave here. And at some point in the next bit of your life, somebody's going to offend you. You know that's coming. 
Okay, it's happening. Somebody's going to offend you. They're not going to like your hair, the way you do your job, the way you raise your kids, whatever the thing is. They're not going to like you, and they're going to tell you. And if you are a Christian, you are standing in the one God. And as they say this to you, God is with you. And you typically, you know, you can go, oh, well, you know, well, them, they're this. Or you, get, you start to navel gaze and get really dopey and you're just like, oh, right? And uh, it's so hard, God. Why do they treat me this way? And I want to tell you that if you're in the Lord, Jesus places his hand on you and he puts out his other hand and he looks at you and he says, I get it. You see the holes in my hand? I did this for you. My disciples ran for me, they mocked me, they spit on me, they beat me, they, they whipped me, they put a crown of thorns on my head, and I did it all for you. Listen, I know what it's like, but I'm, I'm right here and I'm with you. I knew this was coming. It's okay. That change, if you guys would get this mindset, and if I would get this stinking mindset, that my God is always with me wherever I go, then I, gotta, I don't have to go, oh, I better go to church so I can feel better with God, or I better read my Bible or else this, or I better appease those people or else that. You go, no, God's with me all the time. So I was like, I don't really care what your opinion is. What is the truth and what pleases God? You tracking? That changes everything. All right, let me give you a couple things. I'm sorry it's so late. My alarm's going off telling me basically, dude, you are way long. This morning was long. We're not going to do worship afterwards. We're going to do a song. We love you. Get in your car, throw on your favorite worship band, Shane and Shane, blame that, blare that thing. Sing to the heavens, Okay. But let me just tell you one more thing. Um, for those of you who are coming here and you're very spiritual and you're looking for something spiritual, um, the number one reason that has been stated according to stats that you are hesitant to taking a relationship with Jesus is Christians. Number one. Absolutely above everything else is hypocritical Christians. And you're absolutely right. We are hypocrites. Now there's two ways to look at this though. Two ways. Both of them exist at the same time. Number one is this. It's true, and I want to apologize for my behavior and for the behavior of the church in this room. If you've experienced the hypocritical nature of the church, we're very sorry, and you're right. You're absolutely right. On behalf of me and this church, please forgive us. In church, we've got to do better. We've got to do better, not because we want their approval. We've got to do better because we love Jesus, right? He deserves it. And so let's do that. Here's number two. If you're in this room, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you consider yourself spiritual and you're looking, I want you to let you know something else. You are also a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. I know this, Romans 2, 14 through 16, because God's placed the eternity in the hearts of man. I know he's placed his truth and his law in you. Romans 2, 14 says this, when, for when Gentiles, or for when you, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, you are a law to yourself. What is he saying? He's saying this, even though you do not have a law, you're a law. You have it in your heart. They show that the work of the law is written on your heart while your conscience bears witness and your conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse you on the day when according to the gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. You fall short of your own rules and God will judge you according to those. And so you still fall short. And so you are also a hypocrite. So welcome. This is a safe place. This is, uh, this is a... Uh, H.A. meeting. Hypocrites Anonymous. We're all here together. So you are also a hypocrite. But here's what I want you to know. Even though you didn't know you were disobeying God's law, the laws that you broke, uh, your own laws, your own rules, the own things that you've done that you feel in your conscience, Jesus died for those as well. So if you're looking for something, you're looking for hope, inner peace, and healing, and forgiveness, you're not, you're not gonna find it anywhere but in Jesus. Because he knows what's happening in your heart, and he wants to forgive you. He wants to meet you right there. So I want to invite you into that. 
Here's what I want to say to our, to our Mormon friends. And finally, this is the takeaway. For our Mormon friends, you have been falsely taught that Satan is the brother of Jesus and that his plan was to rob us of our free will by making us obey God. In fact, your prophets teach that evil is a necessary experience for the progression of humanity to become God. And that is a lie. That is not what the Bible teaches. The problem with that teaching is that it falls directly into the plan of Satan. Satan's downfall was not that he wanted to force anyone to obey God. It's not that he did that. His downfall is that he wanted to be God himself. And he's convinced you that you can also be God. And that's exactly what he did in Genesis chapter 1. He didn't try to force them to obey God. He said, God's holding something back from you and you could be like him. And that's why it says that godliness, becoming God, is not something we can grasp. We are creatures. Satan is a creature. And he wants to be God. And what's ironic is the choice that we have, our free choice, and that temptation he gave to us, it actually robbed everyone, billions of people of their freedom to have a relationship with God that is full of peace, joy, and love. And my encouragement to Mormons is to listen to what I shared last week. The Bible is worth your trust. You already say it's one of your texts, read it. I would say that it's more trustworthy than the Book of Mormon. And you should listen to my message to hear why. And so... What I want to encourage you to do is invite you to read it from beginning to end. Read it over and over. The version that you have in your home is not an honest transcription of the original writings. No honest historian, scientist would agree that it is. And so if you're looking for one and you want to still read the King James, I'd recommend going on Amazon and buying a King James version, not one that is sold by the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. And if you don't like that, because it's in Elizabethan English and you still don't know what it's saying, like most of us, I'd encourage you to go buy a New King James Version and read that one and go and find out. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. And Christians, I want to encourage you to do the same. Read it over and over looking for God. He wants to have a relationship with you. And you are allowed to ask as many questions as you want. Amen? Well, Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you that we get to be here together. Jesus, praise you that you are God. Holy Spirit, thank you for being inside of us, leading us and guiding us and willing us. And Father, thank you for sending your son. I pray in Jesus' name as my friends leave. If there's anyone in this room who's a spiritual seeker and they're looking for God, I pray that they find you right now, that you make yourself present. They need only confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that you raised him from the dead and they are saved. I pray that you bring them to such a knowledge of their sin and then such a knowledge of your grace that they are overwhelmed and motivated to get up a new person and follow you for the rest of their days. For my friends in here who are Christian, I pray that they leave not looking to one-up their friends, but leave motivated to speak clarity with love and truth. And may you be honored and blessed in Cody, Wyoming, God, as we seek to be your people. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.